but I think that for the way that he was throwing and moving and scraping paint around, he had to do it in an effulgent style. I love that, effulgent. I'll have to Google that word. Today, I'm back with the world's most exciting painting describer, artist Elizabeth Condon. For the third installment of our series, Elizabeth Condon Describes a Painting. You may be thinking, wait, this is an audio podcast, and how can it work when we can't see the painting? Well, just wait. It's the absolute best. Come along with us as Elizabeth describes a painting seen at LACMA this spring by the Californian abstract artist Sam Francis, who was influenced by Japanese and French culture and was a bit of an international nomad. There's a lot of meat on this bone. Elizabeth is a painter who splits her time between New York and Florida, where she also teaches. She is preparing now for a solo show at her gallery Emerson Dorsch in Miami for December and has work up currently at Catherine Markle in Rainbow Rococo and also at the Golden Foundation, both in New York. Let's find out which Francis struck her fancy. Back in a jiff with Elizabeth. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toluto. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome home to Pep Talks. So happy to have you back. Uh, thank you very much for coming back on. It is my great pleasure, Amy. Hello. Hello, you, and hello, everybody. <laughs> so I'm very, very thrilled to have you back with me on the pod to describe a painting. And I want the listeners to please imagine that we're both standing on a prominent marble dais. I have got a corner of a voluminous fabric drape in my hand, and I'm about to give a mighty tug to reveal the work that you have chosen for us today. And I can feel the crowd tensing in breathless anticipation. We're on edge, if you will. <laughs> Drum roll, please. Please take it away, Elizabeth. Everybody, the painting you are looking at is untitled from 1968 to 1969 from Sam Francis's Edge series. Ooh. The painting dimensions are 96 by 156 and a quarter inches. The painting is acrylic on canvas, and it's currently on view at Los Angeles County Museum of Art, I believe through July 16th, in the exhibition, Sam Francis and Japan, Emptiness Overflowing. That's exciting. I can't wait to hear all about Untitled <laughs> from the Edge series and okay. Sam Francis, because I don't actually know too much about him until you suggested um, the work. Well, you know... In the last couple years, and especially since attending the Golden Residency last year, I'm becoming increasingly interested in the technological innovations of the 70s era, mm -hmm. when, uh, when new developments in acrylic paint drove yeah. people to new aesthetic solutions. And Francis is, in some ways, more related to Paul Jenkins' 
and Joan Mitchell as an expatriate American artist who made a first big success in Paris. Um, Paul Jenkins, we haven't gotten to in this series, but uh, <laughs> so anyway, I think that they knew each other in Paris, but I'm wandering far afield. Other people, <laughs> other people in their kin would include Frankenthaler, of course, Morris Lewis, and others who would use diaphanous paint. And would you say they were like the second generation abstract expressionists? Would you? Yes, I would. I would in a loose sense, because as our conversation will reveal, abstract expressionism in Europe and Japan, where Sam Francis also spent really a serious amount of time in what the exhibition in LACMA focuses on, he spent a lot of time in Tokyo and had a studio there, had studios all over the world, Tokyo, Switzerland, California, um, Paris, and New York. Oh, must be um, nice. Yeah, I know. He really <laughs> got set early. But I think that there's a critical discussion to be had about second generation Abex and decorative or a kind of dismissal of them as being more frou-frou additive and decorative than the mm. first generation. And that does relate to New York critique of Francis, which is why he never really fully adjusted to New York. But there's also a relationship that David Hinton, who's a Chinese scholar, draws between abstract expressionism and calligraphy, mm. and that he really equates them in terms of their respective traditions. But there's problems with that in the sense that abstract expressionism, as we know, up until recent scholarship, has kind of a macho reputation. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, whereas calligraphy also actually has a macho reputation. <laughs> but in general, Asian painting or ink painting, Sumier, has a crossover with decorative. So it's a very right. it's a very permeable and contested territory. Um, think of calligraphy as like having a bravura stroke that you have to, the first pass is the only pass and you have to have that mastery to be competent. When you think of those Japanese painters of the past, they're masters, so to speak. They're masters because they can let, now we're already jumping ahead into the painting. Oh. <laughs> but no, no, it's okay. It's okay. The issues are important. You have the mastery of understanding that the emptiness can fill the mark. So that when you move, when you're gesturing with the mark, you know if the ink stops short or if you lift your hand or whatever the condition may be where the physical activity of making the painting is left incomplete by Western standards of a full image, then the master recognizes how the empty space will extend that image through reverberation. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is also discussed a lot with this series of paintings Sam Francis made in 1969, which are alternatively called the edge painting, sail paintings and open paintings. Oh, oh wait, did you say S-A-I-L, sail? I or? did, because oh. some people read the white in the middle of the painting as a sail. Oh, so, okay, so let's go back to the painting. And I was so intrigued to see that you picked this image because in the past, the paintings that the lightning bolt has struck upon you have been pretty dense, like dense, uh, heavily painted works. We had Joseph Stella, who had very dense imagery. And then we had Jules Olitsky, who had the pores, pores upon pores upon pores upon pores of liquid acrylic paint. And here we have San Francis and the painting he tries is so, it almost seems like it's just a white canvas with a 
colorful border on the sides and bottom. And I just, could you go into a bit more about what made you choose it? I, I surely can. So first of all, in the catalog to the show and the show itself, the painting is flipped, but I'm assuming I'm going with the museum install version. The top is left completely bare. So it's just the edge of the canvas against the wall. On the left-hand side, there's water extended, liquid, just liquid water applied on the other three edges, the two sides and the bottom edge. And within those watery strips, which look sharply edged with perhaps a knife akin to what Paul Jenkins used, but again, I'm wandering, but the edges look sharp with a knife and then paint is impregnating the water and spreading insofar as it can along the narrow margins. So on the left-hand side, we have violet and blue, and then in between those two, a kind of stained effect from both colors in the water, almost to an aqua level, but the water stays pretty clear. On the bottom from left to right, we're moving from darker purple to a moment of bright red, and then a beautiful viridian or phthalo green coming up from the bottom, and then what looks like a phthalo blue and then darker blue. Turning up the right-hand side, we have all red. So those are slashes of color edging the painting, which again, the measurements just for scale are 96 by 156 and a half inches. So that is like a really vast area of white. Now, research informs me that that white is not canvas left blank as would be suggested if this were a direct correlate to Sumier painting where the rice paper or mulberry paper would be left blank. No, in fact, <laughs> Sam Francis has diligently hired assistants to Ooh. coat that surface, not once, not twice, but thrice or more with a slightly tinted gesso, tinted warm towards red or sometimes cool towards blue. In the painting that I have, I believe this is warm towards red, but, but I don't remember because I didn't know that when I looked at the painting and I was really looking at the sides and the whole gestalt of the painting when I was actually in Los Angeles uh, at the beginning of April at the show. But again, it must be nice to have assistants to subtly and gently tint one's gesso and apply it in perfect coats, one upon the other. It really must be so nice. <laughs> and I believe that Sam Francis had staff in Tokyo Studios and in Los Angeles. He had a really major staff Well, um, as time went on. He was doing good. He really was. It was that really, you know, abstract expressionism had massaged had massaged a market into existence, and it was booming, I guess, around this time. So it's a big, empty painting with sharp slashes of color. And interestingly enough, they're very tough-minded for him. He's not, he's not relating them to Japanese painting. But in Tokyo, those were very successful paintings for their ability to ponder empty space. But I would like to just give you some background on Sam Francis. Oh, yeah, please. To, okay. So he was born in San Mateo, California in 1923. I just realized that that's one of the reasons why I chose him. He's a Californian by birth. So he's an interloper when it comes to New York. Yeah. And I am fascinated by that, <laughs> being one myself, born in Los Angeles. <laughs> um, his dad was a mathematician, his mother a pianist. He went to UC Berkeley to study medicine. And he ran into Asian philosophy there, I think even by high school. 
he was really into Asian philosophy, which is very similar, I believe, to Jules Olitsky and then also Paul Jenkins. And then he joined the army or the navy and became a pilot in 1944. He had spinal tuberculosis and was bedridden. And that's when he first started to paint. He had to lay on his stomach and paint. And there's a big photo of him like this and all this these oh, really? legends have yes, all these legends have come out of it. Like it was a plane crash and he was brave, but really it was spinal tuberculosis. It's very free to Kahlo because he's <laughs> sort of, you know, making do. And I read somewhere that he had to wear a full body cast too. And it was like or a full body celluloid corset. I was giving conjuring all these images of Frida in her bed. <laughs> well, it that's a that's really nice because I hadn't he hadn't thought of that personally, but there, but it has the resonant echo. And um, he was face down where she was on her back. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so uh, he went back to Berkeley after he got out of his corset, unleashed, <laughs> and he studied art. Um, and he, I think from 45 to 48, studied art. And around the time that he was studying Gorky, Pollock, and Rothko were acquired by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. So he would have seen those as a Berkeley student. And he was also really looking at Picasso, Miro, and Clay. So he was kind of, in some ways, presented with cubism and then abstraction. And he didn't, he went straight into abstraction. He did not really I mean, yeah, he made some representational paintings as a student, but he could declare himself an abstract painter and move right into that burgeoning movement without he, having to make a break. So he he basically, like, am I wrong that he, the first art he ever made was as this soldier in the hospital um, You're not in wrong. his corset with his little watercolor set. And then he didn't even want to be an artist before he joined the Air Corps. Like he, he had right. no plans. So it was kind of like this near-death revelation of some sort. Yes, or, you're, or, you're correct. Or that maybe David Park influenced it or something. Well, David Park did. David Park came to see him in the hospital. So remember, he enrolled in Berkeley as a, he was going to be a doctor. Oh, but okay. then he joined the Air Force, the Air Force, the Navy. I, I, okay, I read Air Corps. I don't know Air which Corps. department that is. Air Corps. Yeah, okay. So the, so let's just say Air Corps. I mean, he wasn't a Marine, but he was one of the other two, I imagine. But he was in the Air Corps of whichever one. So I imagine it would be the Army because did the Navy have it? Anyway. Um, yeah, maybe it was Army. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Whoops. Okay, there's Whoops. a whole enough. Yeah, if anyone would like to weigh in on this, you can. you can... Put it in the chat of whatever. Um, the podcast know, just, chat. Yeah, Put podcast it in our chat. podcast chat. Thank you so much. Um, <laughs> so in that experience of being ill and then turning towards the watercolors, David Park came to visit him, I think in 47. And then he went back to Berkeley as an art student. And David, was David Park teaching there or going yeah. there? Yeah, oh, okay, so he yeah. saw his watercolors in his celluloid corset and was yes. like, hey, why don't you come over and learn? This has yes. merit. This has a glimmer of something. And he also, I think, told him who to go look at. And, mm -hmm. you know, he advised him outside of the capacity of teacher-student, but it ended up, I think, teacher-student. Or mm -hmm. I can't, I didn't focus on that. So I don't know how long Park stayed at Berkeley or... 
that was, was sort of his there. gateway into yeah. art through yeah. like the the nurturing wing over wing of David Park. Correct. And what a wing to have. What a wing. That's a good wow. Wing. Yeah, I would like that wing. I I would I <laughs> I would have I would love to fly on that wing. <laughs> right. So he goes, all right, so he's an art major. He goes back in 48. That's right. Okay. And then on the GI Bill in 1950, he goes to Paris and he studies with Leger. Wow. Leger had an atelier for all these GIs. And so they went over and he hung out with Shirley Jaffe. Oh, really? Yes. Jean-Paul Riopelle. And George Dutite, spelled D-U-T-H-A-I-T, who was Matisse's son-in-law. Wow. So he, he was up. hobnobbing. He was hobnobbing. And he, in Paris, he was painting in oils, and he started making white paintings. These white, I don't know how to pronounce the word, but it's crepuscular. Oh, crepuscular. Or, yeah. Is that like the time between day and night that you yes. climb? Oh, interesting. Why do you say crepuscular? Because they were nestled pods. They were like atomized cells of gray color that was inspired by the Paris sky. Because California light is so different. I mean, that's, I really relate to that because I remember moving to Chicago for grad school. (laughs) It was like, I I couldn't make, especially in the winter. And I couldn't make sense of the light. Like I literally felt unhinged. That was like a gray curtain descends. Exactly. I went to to school in St. Louis. It's kind of the same difference. And it was like, I had come from New Orleans and it was just a similar shock. Exactly. Gray curtain. (laughs) And I don't think enough, you know, I don't think that, that we often think about how, in New York or wherever, in in major cities, how people are coming from all these different places and what that is doing. Because it's this major impact on how you work, but it's this unspoken thing because the world you're participating in is located in this one principality, but really what you're bringing to it is this whole other memory. Mm -hmm. And that is something that happened for him in Paris. He just went straight into the Paris light, painting it as a subject. Light for him was always the subject. But being a Californian, there's so much light. He must have been highly attuned to noticing the the distinctness of Paris light, how it differed from California. Because I think yeah. of them as both really bright lights, but, Interesting. but different. Interesting. Like well, a, his- a warm, hot versus a cool, crisp or something like that. That makes sense. And that's the and that's the case in the paintings too. So they're really beautiful paintings and they have something to do. He, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna mix the sacred and the mundane. He knew Joan Mitchell at some point. And in fact, they got together. They canoodled. They canoodled and with big <laughs> thumbs down from Joan Mitchell. She she had his paintings in her in her house. Thumbs by down. But but she liked him as a painter. She wasn't having any of it otherwise. So <laughs> so I you know fun fact. But she had his paintings in her house. I think. Her Sam. Although I don't feel that bad for him since he was you know <laughs> five times married. Sam Francis was a mixture of all things. He really really liked women. His mother. One thing I forgot to say in 1935, he was born 23. So when he was 12, his mother passed away. His mother passed away suddenly. I think she had a stroke and died within days or a week. And so his father, the mathematician, remarried shortly thereafter. But I think 
A lot of psychoanalysis into the paintings points to the voids of the edge sale open paintings as having a kind of rupture or, you know, an emptiness that needs to be filled. And certainly that theorizing has also gone on with this womanizing, whether or not that's true. He, I'm sure it was a first traumatic break in his life followed by the illness. And um, did, when- did you, I, I happened to catch that also in the tragedy vein that the year after he had accidentally shot his best friend and killed them. I um, did. I did read that. With a pistol. And imagine the guilt of that weighing on you. Um, And probably they didn't really go to therapy at that time. Just have your mother die and then accidentally shoot your friend. What, what a childhood. I know. I know. I mean, I think there were so many happy parts. And I I do think that they traveled to Los Angeles area to visit family. So what am I trying to say by putting that in there? I think that that he he came of age in such a pivotal time for America that these tragedies, these tremendous losses were also offset with with joy and kind of philosophical grounding in you know, carpe diem. I believe that that's who he turned out to be. Although with five studios around the world and no restrictions on what he could do, he really did whatever the hell he wanted. And he was constantly traveling and a very restless person. Mm. So you can argue for all of those factors in both his work and his lifestyle. He married five times. He had (laughs) countless mistresses, you know, he really (laughs) He was just a libertine. I mean, he really just (laughs) couldn't contain himself, but he was very, you know, he was very alive and he was very clear about being in the present. So, I mean, when I was in school in the late seventies at UCLA, he was somebody who my friends, if my friends were assistants to artists, they would sometimes meet him. And I know one friend of mine, Marcy, had mm-hmm. a very low impression of him. Because, you know, as a young art student, you're very higher than thou. You know, you're <laughs> yeah. studying for the priesthood. So yes. you're not like going <laughs> to put up with any nonsense about people selling paintings or whatever in the, you know, in the so-called material. So you're saying temple. he was like that. No, I'm saying my friend was. Yeah. So she just thought he was this very dissolute, corrupt person. But I don't see him. Oh, because he had all the studios and he was kind of producing a lot of stuff. Yeah. And there were assistants and, you know, like a big sellout. I mean, he was not fully, you know, lionized as he didn't have that ponderous reputation of a, of an abstract, of de Kooning. Right. Yeah. And I, I want to talk about that in terms of Asian culture, because it's just so interesting and the colors you know, he used direct color. He had he had somebody, his studio assistant, I believe his name is Dan. Yeah, Bless he's Dan. In, no, I know. Yeah, Dan Citron was his, and then Kishio Suga was the Tokyo assistant. And Dan and Kishio did a lot of that priming. <laughs> they were yeah, working and, hard with that gesso. No, they did. And I think Dan made recipes for Sam for the paint. So Sam used flash. He also used Magna, the early iteration mm-hmm. of acrylic from the Goldens. Yeah, you had he, mentioned if anyone hasn't doesn't know what Magna is, Elizabeth really explains that in the Jules Olitsky episode. But it was like kind of a it was an oil-based paint, but but moving towards acrylic. 
Like water-based, like water, like miscible oils. Yeah. Something, a concept I never understood and clearly not many people do or they'd be more wide. It's very used. tricky to, like, I don't, I still don't <laughs> understand it. I'm like, uh, it's just the, the middle step. It's the middle yeah. step. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's gotta be something in the breakdown, right? Anyway. So he used acrylic emulsion, flash, magnet, and dyes. And sometimes he'd use a PVA, polyvinyl acetate-based acrylic, and sometimes the plastic acrylic, the other, the emulsion that we know in the golden that we have, um, and three or four layers of white gesso, as I've already said, tinted. He worked with Lucius Hudson, whose name I remember as a young student, on 10-ounce cotton duck, and he used also dispersions, hoist, H-O-E-C-H-S-T, dispersions that he got in Tokyo, and he would mix those. But now we have guerra paint. What's and a dispersion? Would, a dispersion is, oh, it's guerra. When you go to guerra, that's how you buy paint. Like a dispersion is an extracted color at its most powerful. So oh. it's pure liquid color and you have to mix it with a binder in order to get it. So you could oh, mix it with okay. egg tempera. You could mix it with the watercolor binder. You could mix it with um, an emulsion, like a liquid text, which is what Sam did. So it's like the acrylic version of when an oil painter might take like the pigment and mix it with linseed oil to make a tube-like color. Yes, you're making your own paint, but you just have a liquid. It's a dispersion. It's not a pigment. So it's like the pigment in liquid form. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he was a real paint on canvas guy and he was using the new technology of the paints, but Dan Citron would help make mixtures for him because the way the paint sits on the edges of the edge paintings and the way it moves into the watercolor is somewhere between an ink and an acrylic. He's it, using dispersion like in a watercolor way? Yeah. Okay. With flash. Sometimes with flash. Yeah. Not always. Like flash, he would he would mostly use acrylic, the okay. dispersion mixed with the mixed with the with the acrylic medium, the emulsion. But he would also then use, he would sometimes mix in inks. He would sometimes mix in dyes and he would sometimes mix in fluorescent colors. Oh, nice. I know. So he was kind of a experimenter. But what I yeah. see is that he set up his studios so that he could just walk in. The paintings would be all over the floor. They're huge. The studios are huge, like airline hangers. He would walk in there with his bare feet over the painting. He'd use sponges and mops and, you know, like brooms and push it around like Ed Clark, but in a wow. different way because it was liquid. So he would like swish the liquid around and then go back in with details, rubbing away or um, adding. And when I say rubbing away, he never took anything away. He was like Sumier. He was like how you described ink painting, but he would maybe scrape a part of the paint back. Mm -hmm. as a way to articulate the form. For example, in his Blue Balls series, which happened. Uh, yeah. Uh, he All has right, a right. Blue Balls series and then he has the Edge series. The Blue Balls is the, what? Like he okay. titled the series, the Blue Balls? He did because he's he's like that. So, <laughs> all right. So we have touched on. I love how you like, that was your whole explanation. Like, well, I'm going to go into the timeline. Because he's like the, that. <laughs> no, because the Blue Ball, because he was ill. He was in the hospital in Geneva. He, he had, I think he had to delay a show. 
he was really sick and he was painting in bed on his back this time. And he, he started working with the color blue. So of course, the minute he got out of the hospital, they turned to these mammoth paintings, but I'm out of the timeline now. So people don't know where we are. So right now we're at 1960. But I've got to fill you in between 1952 and 1950. All right, so we're going to reverse. We're going to come back to the blue balls later. All right, yeah. I mean, we're going to we're going to do it right now. So he he's in Paris. He's studying with Leger. He's hanging out with Shirley Jaffe, Rio Pell, and Dutite. And he also knows Joan Mitchell. He's I think he's married and divorced once by this time. I think he married somebody really young. I don't really remember. 1952, he has a first show at Gallery du Dragon. For him, as with all abstract expressionists of first and second generation, painting represented a personal conversion, and he was linked because of his Paris dwelling with the Tachisme and Abstraction Lyrique, uh, Envolé Lyrique, the lyrical flight. Do you talk a bit more about Tachisme? Because I I personally had never heard of it, and I I imagine some listeners might not have heard of it either. It is basically addressing the issue of touch. Tachisme to the canvas, the touch of the canvas, moving away from cubism, reinvigorating impressionism in a kind of personalized touch on the canvas. And it's linked to um, Nicholas de Stael. There's a few other people who are really well known. I am totally... Um, when I googled Tachisme, the only name I recognized was Jean Dubuffet. Dubuffet, also Wolves. Wools, yeah, Wools has like a very scratchy ink quality, and he also splashes ink and then incises into it. So Wools is like the grandfather of Tachisme. Okay, more of a lyrical, like it's a contrast to the, what this article says, the aggressively raw style of abstract expressionism. So it's more lyrical. It's more lyrical, but, and we could say, depending on the years... We could say that they're coming up concurrently. In some ways, it's both sides of World War II. Because you've got Paris, who was invaded. You've got, you know, Cubism breaking down in a way in the, I mean, basically, Europe is horrified. And by 1968, they're going to revolutionize. They're horrified by the wars. And they're looking for something that's you know, they're looking for something else. Like beauty and humanity. Yeah. And th- and something that is maybe also shattered, like their world has been shattered. So how are they going to put it together? So they, they reach, as the Americans do, towards abstraction. But they're working in their houseman designed apartments. They don't have like a whole lot of room. They don't Neither- have a barn out back. Right. Island. I mean, it's not Long Island. Yeah. So they... <laughs> are making these intimate, surrealist, kind of, you know, impressionist, personal paintings Mm. that are abstract. Whereas the Americans gain the scale. Francis in Paris, I think, has a small apartment and takes over the entire, one of the reasons why his first marriage broke up, probably, but again, pure (laughs) pure speculation, don't quote me, But but the apartment is filled from floor to ceiling, literally with canvases, and he's making the white. How do you say that word? Press crepuscular. Crep- I think of chipmunks. Chipmunks are crepuscular because they only come out in the evening or early morning. Interesting. <laughs> so he's making these paintings, these liminal 
paintings. Let me get on familiar ground. Uh, liminal. A word I Look can out. pronounce. So he's in the liminal area. I just want to say, so I'd say from 52 to the blue balls, actually, he is making the crepuscular paintings, but he's moving from a gray white at the start of the 50s towards the end of the 50s using black with hot color underneath, heating through, giving rise to his belief that color is light on fire. His belief was color is light on fire. Yeah. That's quite a sentence. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. So he's considered a Tashisme lyrical abstraction artist. And there's overlap with those two. You could argue, for example, with Norman Bloom, that he could be in the lyrical abstract category, but also second generation abstract expressionism. So there's a lot of continental divide here. But also, I just want to say for a harbinger of the future that the artists that Sam Francis loved more than anyone in Paris were Monet, of course, and Bonard. Oh, Bonard. He also said of Bonard, he reminds me that silence and arrest equal ecstasy. That the best way to know a thing is to eat it and lick it. Sam. You bad boy. Calm down over there. bad boy. In Tokyo, Switzerland, LA, and New York. Calm down over wherever you are. So he's so right now we're still in Paris. It's the 50s. And his shows are getting reviewed in Europe by no less than Sir Herbert Reed, who refers to his work as crystallization because of these small pods of white. In that sense, he's very much like Joan Mitchell, how she builds that staggered stroke in almost shapes that mm-hmm. start to interconnect. He is making pods. I mean, they're the closest they're going to be at this time. They're painting very, very differently. His paint is soft and wet. Hers is drier and more kind of built out from the surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Sir Herbert Reed calls it crystallization, which I think is a really good word. Um, in the 1950s, he moves towards black, the satanic color from which light emerges. Oh. 1955, the cells start to break up. And he starts to show in America at MoMA, at European galleries and museums. So by 1955, he's he's got serious international reach. So he was born in 23. So just to give you a sense, he's about 32. And then in 1956, he signs with Martha Jackson Gallery, who he's going to throw over for the Pierre Matisse Gallery in 1959. But he does three shows with Jackson. And in 1957, so we're in Paris up to this point, And continental Europe. And then in 57, he takes his first world trip, New York, Mexico, Japan, Hong Kong, Thailand, India, and he gets his first mural commission in Tokyo for for the Flower Arranging Society. Oh, and you must feel a little bit since you just completed yourself some mural size, not only a mural for Nortemar or collaborated on a mural, but you also made mural size works just recently for university based on flowers. And it really hurts me because Sam's is bigger than mine. His was eight. <laughs> his was eight by thirty-nine feet, and mine was only four—a diminutive four by thirty-two feet. So I'm really so. Wait, sorry. is that the university one or the, the university one? Oh, yeah, the outdoor <laughs> dare one. I, Sam. The, the outdoor one was two hundred and thirty-two feet. So move over, Rover. Yeah. 
And not that I'm feeling competitive with Sam. He's, you know, <laughs> and so Sherman Lee and Sherman Lee was a preeminent scholar of Chinese art. American, and I believe he was at the Cleveland, Cleveland Museum of Art, is like a stronghold of Chinese uh, collection. Yes. And so Sherman Lee, I think, was affiliated or was curator there and described Sam Francis's paintings as flung ink landscapes, harking back to Seishu, who is the Sumier master of Japan. Um, In 57, Sam is working from Moby Dick as subject matter. Really? This is, yes, this is going to impact our understanding of the edge painting from his side, because remember, he's adding the layers of gesso before he, he starts to paint. So for him, unlike the Japanese, the white isn't empty. It is already full and it is acting as a color. Uh, but for the Japanese, the white is acting as a space. And right. A and we should talk a bit about that concept. But before we do... Are you saying that the whiteness of the whale in Moby Dick, sort of in a philosophical way, the obsession with a white being um, yes. inspired these paintings? Yes. So interesting. Yeah, I know. I think so, too. Did you want to talk a little bit about, because it was new to me, this concept of Ma or the Japanese idea of empty space as a presence? Would you mind talking a bit about that in case a listener also might not know it yet? I will talk about it. And I just want to say, by way of disclaimer, my understanding of emptiness is really through Chinese. I'm sure that the concepts of Japanese and Chinese emptiness are not far apart, but I am really giving you the Chinese version. I have done some preemptory study of yohaku and ma, which are both interchangeable terms for emptiness used in this exhibition but also, also separate in the sense that yohaku is the, is the whole emptiness. So one might talk about Francis's untitled as an edged space of emptiness containing emptiness, which he would decry. And that emptiness is something that is a reciprocal relationship between the viewer and the painting because the viewer has to contend with it. It's the subject and it's the dominant aspect of the painting. And to fall into that emptiness for the Asian culture is um, is a very, I wouldn't say sacred, but I would say essential form of interaction that is of great depth, that you would not shy away from emptiness as something that is nothing. It's potential. It's in the Buddhist belief Emptiness is rife with potential. It's the seedling. It's the it's the ground under which the seeds are percolating. It's where all the change happens. You know, that in Buddhist thought, your consciousness is where is what's going to bear fruit. But the fruit doesn't matter. It's it's the germination process. And in in the actual act of applying ink into paper, and I'm sure I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. The mulberry paper is absorbent to ink. Both are natural materials. When you are preparing to paint, you must, your hand, your eye, and your gesture are moving in a circle from your body, from the shoulder, through your arm, onto the paper in a rotation. As the brush hits the paper, the intention is there before the brush hits the paper. In the cycle of the motion of the arm from the shoulder downward to the paper, that intention bears fruit in the mark. If that mark is left short, you move with that mark into the emptiness. You do not fill for the sake of filling. You do not go back. 
So that is the large emptiness. The paper is potential. It's breath waiting to receive. It's inhaling the ink. And then the gesture gets exhaled as the arm moves off. I mean, this is really crude, but this is my understanding. It doesn't sound crude to me. (laughs) And one of the things when you're working on plum blossom, there's these basic tenets that you have to learn, which are the translation of calligraphy writing into pictorial form, since the writing is pictographic in itself. One of those idioms is the plum blossom, and the plum blossom is made, you start one blossom one way, and then you start the other blossom the other way. So you're always very awake. You can't do it mindlessly. You Um, will fuck it up. And so this painting of this very consciously painted edge with this sort of breathing, slightly subtly tinted white is almost an embodiment of this idea of Ma and brush painting and Buddhist thought and philosophy. For the Japanese. But let me just say that the yohaku this large emptiness, this potentiate, and then the interval, the in-between things, the dragon veins is what it's known in Chinese, where you're, when you're unfurling the scroll and there's emptiness to mark a transition from one scene to another. Let's say the emperor is moving from east to west. And so it's going to be 114 feet of this passage. And so in that, there's always islands of activity and emptiness. And in that emptiness is the interval. It's the ma. Your mind is moving through that emptiness, carrying with it. It's like when you watch television and the next morning you see it encapsulated Mm -hmm. in your memory before you switch out the slide for your everyday life. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of phenomena where you're taking that, what's just lodged in your consciousness through that empty space and shedding it in a way, preparing for the next opportunity. So there's like a shorter interval to the emptiness and then there's a longer. It's like the negative space in West, but negative space in West is seen as empty, whereas in the East, it's not seen as empty at all. And I'd like to read to you, if you don't mind. Yes. There's some really serious quotes here, but this is quite critical and it's quite, it's not short. Um, In other words, it's long. The (laughs) emptiness that is not empty. Um, So there's Japanese writing about it, but I want to read to you Lee Ufon's take. And I can show you pictures here of Seshu and this emptiness. So Elizabeth is showing an image of a, is it a Japanese ink painting that's, you know, maybe six panels across and it's these tall towering pine trees and a little bit of a foggy pine trees in the background, but there are panels that are almost completely open and empty or, or, you know, full of no specific brush mark. In the period between Sam in Paris moving towards the black and then back towards the white and the Moby Dick, he also starts to take the cellular structures and bleed them out almost like a Gorky painting, but in the Sam style. And so the emptiness starts to open up and those move into blue balls, which are blue balls suspended in space across large substrates. And they culminate in the edge paintings before moving on to something else. Mm-hmm. I want to point out that that in some ways his paintings are grouped towards exhibition, that it seems like he's moving in bodies of work that have relationship to exhibition, because it just seems like he moves through a lot of ideas and those ideas are probably linked to exhibition. 
So um, almost like an installation artist, he he thinks of an idea and expands into a space and realizes it. And then that's the end of that. Yeah, it's like a morphing. You know, it's not that he like there's a through line, but it's also kind of a morphing from one phase to another, like a segue. This is Lee Ufan, whose work you may know because he shows in New York. He has some interesting paintings that are pretty conceptual. And I think that Asian painting is often very conceptual. The idea of discovery through the painting isn't the same. It's like, I, I, I think that the mind and body are so connected that it's more like a philosophical transformation and not like based in psychology in the way that the United States is. But Lee Ufan muses on Sam Francis's work. I think that in the U.S. at the time, there was an affinity between the desire to critique capitalism, mass production, and consumer society, and a notion of East Asian sensibility or philosophy. Artists tend to be very sensitive. My observation was that in the West, artists were already noticing that this focus on the mass production of objects, the growing of material wealth, and gross national product, et cetera, resulted only in the proliferation of junk, which was ultimately unfulfilling. And so artists were interested in considering what would happen if we eliminated these things? What would happen if we cleared the ground of this material stuff? What would be left afterwards? What kind of in-between space, that space of nothingness, would result? This kind of drive, in my opinion, didn't quite yet exist in Japan, because we were still so focused here on growth, production, and catching up post-war, of course, uh, I'm saying that. So this important notion of emptiness had been latent or unconscious within Japanese people. It took the influence of Western artists to activate it and bring it to the surface. I think it's very significant that Sam Francis was from California and lived in LA. He was distanced from New York, a city that was still focused on the mode of mass production. And that allowed Sam Francis to have this desire to create color, to be one of the artists who worked towards eliminating this culture of the production of stuff and create a tabula rasa. Though Francis was initially uncomfortable with the parallel that was drawn between his practice and Japanese aesthetics, still, I think people are motivated unconsciously. And I believe that Sam Francis, whether willingly or unconsciously, was influenced by or made connections to Japanese aesthetics. Wow, that was very interesting, because I feel like you could make that criticism now. <laughs> like the idea of um, over-professionalization of art and capitalism and creating products for the market. And it, it seems like there was like this babyhood of the United States having that scene here. Like I'm sure it was already happening in France, but when the abstract expressionist movement got going and everybody got rich and everybody got famous and everybody's on the magazine covers wearing their suits and they have multiple homes all over the world, then there's that pressure from the market to produce and produce and produce. And I'm sure that New York didn't want to lose that honor of being the center of the art world. And so everyone collaborated to create that strong market that, you know, still happens today. Which Would you say that that's sort of I a do, New York thing? I do think so. And I think that that's why I'm so interested in these outliers. Yeah. Because, you know, in some ways you could compare Sam Francis's lifestyle to Bryce Martin at a certain point, like maybe in the 80s or the 90s when he had the place in Italy and maybe he had another place. And then, and also somebody very engaged with Eastern culture and philosophy. But, uh, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, I can't, I'm not 
prepared to comment on Bryce Martin in any right. other way. He just came out of nowhere. But we would need to go on the Wikipedia yeah, again. <laughs> we we would, and we're, we're not doing that right now. But I but I I think there's something in between those things. I think for those early guys, those second generation abstract expressionism, they did walk into this market. Yeah, it was cultivated, and so the money was just flowing. Yeah, and then he Sam had the added step. He was in Paris, and then he did go to Tokyo for a long time, and he was strongly collected by his eventual stepfather, an oil magnate in Japan, oh, and wow. gave him like a huge studio and really bought his work in depth and has the largest San Francisco collection, I think, anywhere in the world to this day. And so he has a museum now. And Sam also was really involved. This was true of Paul Jenkins as well. He was really involved with Gutai and also a Manoha both post-war Japanese groups who worked collaboratively through materials as a counterbalance to spiritual philosophies that for them had been erupted in the war. So I think for Li Yufan to bring this cultural critique to Sam Francis's emptiness is really wise. Meaning Someone- like he was reacting against the over-commercialization of the New York abstract painters? I think that he might have wanted to get away from New York because he, because the ethos of New York wasn't, he was much gentler than that. Yeah. You know, he made pretty paintings and New York sneered at him and, and, and it was a macho culture and he, I'm sure he had macho qualities, but he wasn't really a macho person. Like he, you know, made pretty paintings. He loved women and hung out with women. He had, you know, he had children who turned out to be artists and, I mean, I think he was a nurturing person mm-hmm. and because he was so deep, and this is very similar to Paul Jenkins, who I've talked about to someone else, but not you, you know, they were gentle men and they, and there wasn't really room for them and they made beautiful work and it wasn't, mm-hmm. wasn't gritty enough for tough old production New York. But I think that kind of grittiness, just coming back to your question is is what didn't suit them. And that kind of machismo, like, I'm going to out drink you at the bar. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure Sam Francis drank. I don't know, because he did have physical problems. Maybe he couldn't drink. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he did, but I don't think he was, you know, alcoholic in the way that Jackson Pollock was, which I also attribute to the market, you know, to the pressures of, I mean, I think that Gorky and Pollock and all those guys, they just didn't even know it was hitting them. Like they, yeah. and I, and Rothko, like probably just couldn't even handle the cognitive, cognitive dissonance between how art is made and how it's received. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that it's kind of a heartbreaking story about what does and doesn't work in American culture, but I think that that kind of culture also kept these sorts of guys out. Yeah. And so in a way it's not so much like, like, I think Sam, you know, he gave it a shot. But he's just like, oh, here, Kiki, you take the studio because this is just like, I'm not happy <laughs> yeah. here. I'm not you happy mentioned, here. Um, when you say Kiki, you mean um, yeah, Kiki Kogelbeck, yeah. um, who was a pop art uh, Austrian painter. In, in yeah. you know, she was hobnobbing with Warhol and, and that gang. And she always wore crazy hats and outfits. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I think we're going to see more of her. I think she's starting to be shown and, you know, she's. She's pretty interesting. I mean, he definitely had, he definitely uh, dated really interesting women. I just wanted to say before we move on that um, your point about how he was sort of the, you know, the balm to that sort of macho abstract expressionist vibe. 
I read this description of his physical person <laughs> in oh. I think uh, in an obituary of some of of sorts written by William Wilson of the Los Angeles Times, and he said he looked robust, <laughs> rather like a portly Caucasian Buddha. <laughs> his baldness ringed with a fringe of long gray hair, and I was just like, you know. <laughs> you have to i mean come on give him a break but i did love that idea of like no one would describe jackson pollock that way there was never like he was a robust portly caucasian buddha <laughs> bald with a fridge of gray long gray hair and also i like the idea that he just didn't care he was just like dude i'm not i'm not here to be in the fashion spread i'm not trying to look like avant i'm not trying to pretend and put on this avant-garde mystique i'm just who i am i'm this like humble person who practices buddhism and i'm not putting on any kind of um, artifice it's what i interpreted it as that's really interesting because that is a side conversation which should be pursued about the role of physical appearance in yeah career. yeah I mean, I mean i think this guy was short you know and he Listen, he had appetites. I mean, the dude loved food. I think, I mean, there's plenty of pictures of with, with him and Saki. I'm sure he's, I'm <laughs> sure he's living large and, you know, as a, a hedonist. Short, he was a hedonist. Exactly. I mean, so <laughs> nine or no, 10 on the Enneagram. What is it? The Epicure, whatever. Like, oh, know. you know, he was just, you know, loved women, wine and song. He really did. And so, you know, and so I think that that was, um, problematic in the way that it wouldn't have been for Pollock or de Kooning. I mean, de Kooning, I think, was small, too, but he didn't. He clearly had no trouble for whatever reason. I, I mean, I, I think also that Sam was a big deal in L.A. He owned a lot of real estate in Santa Monica. He started a print studio there, the Lithos studio, which was like a fully functioning print studio. And his printmaking would be a separate conversation. But in the LACMA show, there was plenty of it. And his way of working is really fabulous in print um, because because everything's made solid. So it gets really interesting. And, and he would uh, do color, color lithographs. Yeah, color lithographs. And also he I mean, he did all sorts of things. Uh, but yes, lithographs and the and they're beautiful. Uh, I mean, that kind of the, the transparency translated to opacity is really beautiful. But he also started Mocha. Oh, yeah, he and a bunch of other people, because I remember his kids went to Crossroads because I remember people would say, oh, yeah, Sam Francis. I think my friend Marcy, who who didn't like him, she'd be like, oh, Sam Francis, you know, yeah, he just, you know, runs She's like that, that robust, portly Caucasian Buddha. She kind of did say that. And she, and she and she would have to make deliveries to his studio or something like I can't remember, but she would just be like, oh, you know, I think she felt like he painted by the yard in the way that uh, mm. Morris Lewis did or something. And. But yeah, his kids went to Crossroads and, and then, and I was aware, like I was there and I was aware of all of this, but peripherally, it was just part of the background. He wasn't who I was looking at, but he was part of life in Los Angeles. He was almost like the art historical past. Kind of. But yeah. also like stitching the fabric of LA together too. like And the future yeah. and left really serious legacies. So I believe that part of what he owned is the 18th Street residency in Santa Monica. I mean, I think he really did. I think he really gave things away to people and set people up. But in New York, Hilton Kramer said his painting was, he had a retrospective at the Whitney, 
I think in the 70s, and Hilton Kramer said, there was a lack of struggle in his work. The work was emotionally thin. I mean, what you could say about Bonard, um, you know, there's so many artists that at the time people say stuff like that. And then later on, we discover so much complexity, like this idea of ma. Um, right. That there's so much rich uh, conceptual content in the work. Right. I mean, it. right. And such cultural sophistication that, you know, what like, like, like Sam Francis was literally up in another culture. He wasn't, he was living in Paris. He wasn't going on long trips. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it, he was in the Tashisma. Yes. Thank exactly. you very much. Yeah. He was part really. of the Tashisma. I think Roberta Smith also had very little praise for him. Um, <laughs> Maybe she'll come back around. I mean, you know, it would be nice. She came back around about Cecily Brown. Yeah. But I, you know, so. Do you think it's that, because I, I remember that piece about Cecily Brown. Do you think it's it's that sort of like bravura, id style, flinging paint style artist that sort of is just maybe in her you know, in her blind spot, like, you know, like a restaurant critic who hates cheese, it, you know, they're never going to give a good review to anything that has cheese in it. <laughs> but I think of her as like, maybe she has like a little bit of a dislike of that style. That's really interesting. And I don't know. I mean, I'd love to hear her on Rothko. I mean, yeah. you know, I, or de Kooning, I mean, it's hard to not like, it's hard to go against de Kooning because he's such canon, but but someone similar, you know. That's well, what... Pollock, maybe, because I think Sam Francis is related to Pollock. Yeah. And, and Impressionism, it's that whole Impressionism. And this came up with another conversation we had, too. I mean, Pollock through Impressionism, I think, too, I think we were talking about our friend Jules Olitsky. Oh, yeah, Jules. And so I think that Sam Francis comes out of that tradition, too. And... She probably does. I mean, she was early on a big Gustin proponent. Yeah. Um, and she likes the, and I think she likes Steve Benedito. you know, that really get in there, you oh, know, really? Yeah, but there's so. like a lot of, um, I would say there's a lot of um, um, like a dark gravitas that is part of Gustin and Steve Benedetto where you're not really finding that dark, gritty gravitas, which, you know, may I say New York style gravitas in the Sam Francis, Francis. in the Sam Francis. Work. Sam Francis wrote in correspondence with his beloved friend, Yosh, Yoshiaki Tono, who called him like a nice, pleasing, fat whale and would write him like, my dear fat friend. Like in, they were, no, they were really friends. They were like really good friends. And and Sam would be like, I love you, Tono, but whatever. I mean, I mean, I think that, and Lee Ufan observed that they were extremely close. Like if they were gay, they would have been lovers, but yeah. they weren't. Um, but Sam also wrote to Tono that he had the deep yellow, dark blood of Japan in him. And when I think about ink, I mean, my experience with ink is that, that, ink and China were made for each other. And that that ink was like the river of China. And I feel like that light paint and bright paint in Sam's case has a relationship to ink and a relationship to watercolor that, that 
if you don't know the culture, you just could never find it. It would just be like, I don't know, lady painting of the time. It would be easy to dismiss, which is what occurred from a lot of the New York critics. Yes, it, it is. And there's a chapter in this catalog on that too, which is very cogent. Um, this I mean, is the catalog for the show at LACMA right now. Yes. Lee Ufon said that Sam's work was, was sweet mm-hmm. in the way that Asian culture can be sweet. Hello Kitty, right. music in restaurants. And before I went to China, I was very scathing of that kind of sweetness, but that sweetness in that culture is very different than it is considered in New York. Like New York, it, it, it calms people down instead of creates tension. It talks about the horror of nuclear annihilation through flatness, like the big boy by Takashi Murakami and the whole big boy theory and the flatness. You know, instead of... Wait, I'm not sure if I know the big boy theory. Oh, the big boy theory. Basically, he's just talk, he, he studied Nihonga painting, which I think is very close to a kind of painting in Chinese culture that's highly detailed and representational. So it's very, very flowery and ornate and representational. Murakami studied this. I mean, I love oh. thinking about it. And he he felt that the nuclear annihilation of Japan was so horrific that Japanese culture developed a flat cuteness that was like a shock defense against the trauma. And that to me is such a savvy reading of how that sweetness functions. And I'm going to go a step further. I didn't anticipate telling you this, but growing up in LA and when I go back to LA, like when I'm walking down the street, and there'll be people walking by and there's a kind of smiling that happens. I always think of it as not New York. Like you go by <laughs> and people smile at each other to reassure each other. Hmm. And it's like, but people in LA can be really mean, but they're, but they're going to be nice before they're mean. And, and it's something, I don't know if it has to do with the light, the laid back beach culture. I don't know what it is, but it it does happen. And and I think it probably happens. It, I mean, I know in Florida, it hap- you know, it happens in places where you're not primed to just go out there and, you know, execute a mission. Right. And, and so I think that that is part of it, too. like the gentility. Like when I was in China all the times, you think that people really like you. In fact, they probably really hate you because your <laughs> cultural forebears came in and took all their cave. Right. But, you know, they but. They're so polite and faultless that you feel like you're really like pampered. And it's, it's this- a little bit like Midwestern too, the way that people are so, so sweet and nice, like that sort of Norwegian heritage. And then there's, and then they don't, they don't actually like you. Yeah. They're like, <laughs> they hate you. Like, they, like, like they're just getting through you as quickly <laughs> as they can, but you, you're like, Oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> love I mean, you know, yeah. Like I take, I take it to heart. So I, you know, I feel like that. And, and so I think Sam Francis's bright colors have that feeling, you know, they're, they're seemingly friendly. 
you know, they're disarming. And then the buoyancy of the paint and the white space and the cleanliness is like, oh, I could put that up on my wall without, you know, we, you know, and I don't have to be a knowledgeable collector. I don't have to understand why is this trash heap of paint important to me? Mm-hmm. And I'm not knocking, you know, like the joys of moving into the mud. I'm just saying that that that's held as a primary principle that somebody who's interested in Asian culture is going to have no interest in, Mm -hmm. or or at least in the case of Sam Francis, or shall I say Frankenthaler or Lewis. Could you explain a bit more, like when you say moving into the mud and going into an Asian culture, could you explain more about that? I just, I think moving into the mud is shorthand for Steve DiBenedito. Oh, okay. Somebody who's like working paint so hard that they're like finding color in the mud. Right. Like, and oh, that it's like, yeah, it's like, like substantiality. Right. And so and, that sort of a collector is more prejudiced towards that style of painting because it, it feels embedded with psychology or some kind maybe, of id or. I, I would go, I wouldn't go that far because I don't know. I would say that, that that it is taken more seriously critically yeah. or by artists themselves. It's not seen as right. light or thin. It's not seen as thin. There's a labor component. Right. So you're paying money for something that visually looks like it took months to make because it's I just mean, got so much material on the surface and work and marks. I mean, I don't know what people think, but there is there is a kind of, there is a labor there is a kind of relationship to labor. And then I think about somebody like Lisa Beck or, or um, Andrea Belog, people, right. who, people who are working from very ephemeral gestures. Um, and I also wanted to just say real quick that I, I do really love Steve DiBenedetto's work. I'm just, we're just using him as an example of a heavily worked thick artist in this podcast, but not trying to shade him. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I don't think we're using any of these people in any kind of, I mean, these are people who are coming to our consciousness. Yeah. So it's like, a, I mean, I think he has work up somewhere and I think he's really great. Yeah, I love his but, work. So I, just, I, I was using him as like, you know, because we're saying Sam Francis is sort of the opposite, but I didn't want to make a value judgment, just this sort of. Yeah. And I think, I mean, also Richie, remember that painter, the, um, Oh, Matthew Richie. Richie. Yeah. Like was that, that um, Andrea Rosen? Yeah. A kind of layered drawing. He had a moment. <laughs> he had a moment and a kind of layered drawing that, that spoke to lightness, but also to labor. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, so Sam Francis uses scale for labor, but he, I don't even think he wants to convey the idea of labor. No. I think he wants to talk about a state of, I think he wants to suspend pain. So it's, so what people are into is really very interesting and in how painting represents philosophy and culture and belief is like mm-hmm. endlessly fascinating. And that's why I yeah. chose Sam. Fr- and also I think the edge paintings, I mean, this is really different than where I thought the conversation would go. But I also think like, how important is it? Like when I look at the paintings, if I look at a shot of them in the studio together, they're really shocking because they're huge and they're they're shockingly divided and you're looking at these empty paintings. And so yeah. in some ways they almost become like a gesture, an artistic gesture that's not really painting, but it's conceptual. And that is also, that was also really interesting to me. Like, is this even painting? 
So even I have those questions. Like the labor is not evident, but it is so akin to brush painting, um, the Chinese and Japanese brush painting, that it's not about proving that you spent time on something. Right. But getting that ultimate bravura moment or gesture, like that trapping magic in a bottle of that first gesture is is what's prized, not just the labors, the hours of sweat. Yeah, the documenting <laughs> of process is really not popular in classic Asian painting. Right. It would probably be considered rude. And I know like when I taught ink painting or just to get a good ink painting, it would take about two and a half hours. Yeah, to, to me, prep. That, that that is literally like, if we're looking at difficulty, like as if it were like the Olympics, I feel like ink is number one, the hardest, then watercolor, <laughs> then all the oils and acrylics, you know, that in the painting category of the Olympics, I consider ink the most difficult because it really is so unforgiving. Yeah, it is unforgiving. You can't go back. You really, you can't, you just can't. And yeah. watercolor is at watercolor is also really tough. You can especially go back if you, like one time, but that's it. Yeah. And especially if you work the whites, you know, if you were like, if you work that, that classical way, which I don't, but I know people do, but it's a very I, Sam Francis way to work is to work the whites. Uh, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really, you know, I just feel like it's it's a the show in LA is it's a smallish show. He hangs with a lot of his friends. So there and there's a lot of printing. There's relatively few paintings and there's a lot of work on paper and printing. And 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 it's a beautiful show if you can get there. But if you can't, the catalog is good. And I want to give a shout out to the writer Richard Spear, who did a really great job in breaking down some of the uh, critical issues for Sam Francis. And it is Sam Francis's centennial right now. So the Sam Francis Foundation is going big on showing his work and getting it out there. But I think that Richard Spear is one of the few contemporary writers I've read who has a grasp on the complexities of cross-cultural working and what Sam Francis faced critically from making the word work he made and the role of the decorative used pejoratively in New York painting specifically about his work. He, he did a great job. It's so good to have critics like that, that correct the historical um, to get a little fresh air in the historical timeline, because um, so many people get overlooked or, if they don't fit the movement, they get sidelined and forgotten. Yeah. So it's good to excavate. But I, I also wanted to give a shout out in addition to Richard, which is a wonderful shout out to um, Working Until You Die, because I read that, um, which is like every artist's dream, but Sam Francis really like embodied it. Like Cezanne, he he had another kind of the poor guy. After all that, the celluloid corset and the two bouts of tuberculosis, blue balls, et cetera, he ended up getting prostate cancer, which is, you know, very common, I think, for older men. But he ended up kind of having a final burst of energy in the 90s, uh, right before he died. And he made 150 small paintings um, with his left hand because he couldn't use his right hand somehow. Maybe it was injured or maybe it was related to something, but he used, it's like, 
in his final moments, this poor guy has, I mean, not poor, he's laughing all the way to the bank. But in the final moments, he survived multiple tuberculosis, years in the hospital, celluloid corsets, painting on a bed upside down on his belly. And now he's got prostate cancer and he can't even use his hand. And he's just like, God damn it. I'm going to use my left hand and I'm going to make a dazzling series of 150 small paintings. And then he just kind of expired. (laughs) And I just want to say like, bravo. Like that's, that to me is like, uh, I don't know, just, it's very um, epic. It's like the best word I could say. It's like, so, so um, I'm so um, impressed and I want to emulate that spirit. And I think um, it was pretty impressive. That's all. I really agree with you. And I remember I, my interest in him was kindled by a photograph of that studio, which had a peaked roof and on the walls were just these tons of like what looked like grid paintings. And I was painting these lattices and yeah. I, and I, and I, and I had, I thought it was the work of a robust, healthy, young Caucasian young Buddha. Yeah. Caucasian <laughs> Buddha, raging Caucasian. And, and, and to know that he switched, you know, that was going to be his dream house that I think he'd hired Isosuko, the guy who built the Louvre. Mm, oh, okay. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I mean, he hired him to design this whole ranch up in Northern California. Whoa. So he eventually went back to where he came from in Northern California after totally, you know, buying up Santa Monica and Crossroads <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> I'm obsessed with it. But he, and he went up there. Crossroads is like a very elite, school yeah private school yeah yeah I I mean I it's just it's just it's such a great name for school actually (laughs) so he went back and made these paintings as you say with his left hand and it it leads me back to something about the conversation between the worked paintings of New York the layers of New York let's say and the relatively unfettered treatment of paint in other places if we're going to broadly dissect. Yeah. And it shows how his need to move the water and people talk about every critic mentions his love of light and water and that he needed to move his hand. It wasn't even like he needed to make a tabletop scene or paint a certain kind of thing. He just needed to move that paint. Mm-hmm. Just very like brush painter style. Like you said, when you were making the lotus or the, um, sorry, the blossom. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to finish that point, by the way, when you're making the plum blossom, you would sometimes trace over the whiskers of the plum blossom without even touching down your brush. And you would do it eight times, maybe nine, four times. So the whiskers had quadrants. So you go one, two, three, and you would, you would only put the brush down if you were moved to, but (laughs) otherwise you would just be re-emulating with the touch of your wrist. And the movement of your brush, you would emulate the whiskers of the, so, so it didn't matter what went on the page. It mattered what was happening in your experience with your hand. Like a ritual of some, of sort. Exactly. And so I kind of, I don't feel that he had that kind of ritual, but I think that for the way that he was throwing and moving and scraping paint around, he had to do it in an effulgent style. I love that effulgent. I'll have to Google that word. But anyway, uh, so what would you say to someone as a, like a, a kind of a final, uh, you know, coup de grace? What would you say to somebody who said, oh, Sam Francis, he's just a light and airy painting by the yard. What would you say back? 
I would say Sam Francis is underestimated. He is a great conduit between philosophies and cultures through the liquid vehicle of paint that may look cute like Japanese, you know, kai kai or have the bright colors, but it has the life force. Sam Francis has the life force. I love that. That was good. You're so good at that. That's why I have you come and describe the painting. <laughs> um, have we wrapped up Sam? Is there any final thing you want to say about Sam or should we move on to what you have coming up? I think we have given Sam some good time. There's always more that I could say, but I think that I'm going to say goodbye for now and urge anybody near LA in the next in the next month to go see this show next month and a half. I'll sum with Yoshiaki Tono. Samuel Lewis Francis saw white when he was born. It was an eternally fresh death. All the frustrated dreams were concealed secret as negatives behind that white perfection. You could have dreamed any image looking over this pond of possibilities and a kind of white eroticism with floating. White revived as the blank arena for the dialogue and colors. Beautiful dialogue between Aristotle and Plato on the white. As a stream of consciousness, Japanese tribute from one friend to another. Um, yeah, let's all remember to consider space and a white canvas or an, an empty work table that's going to create a sculpture as full of possibility. <laughs> Thank you, Amy. <laughs> let's try to remember that instead of the overwhelming feeling of, I'm not going to be able to pull this off. <laughs> well, I mean, that's no, that's right. I mean, you know, because that's the thing. It's like, is it pulling off? What is painting? I don't know. You know, it's it's like, is it that? Or is it like at the end of your days, it's your expression. Yeah. You know, we look our whole lives to find the one gesture or expression or sequential building or however we work to get to where we want to go. And he he found it fast. And and so he kept on going and morphing it. But I think that that's always such an interesting question is as time goes on, what is it, you know, what are yeah. we doing? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the fun of it because it's yeah. indefinable. Yeah, it is. It contains everything. It contains multi multiple, what it, it contains multitudes. multitudes. <laughs> it contains multitudes. It's the life force. It's how we live our lives. Well, thank you for that wonderful description. And I was really, my mind was really blown by all the insights you had about the work. And I really enjoyed learning about how he was influenced by Asian culture and the ideas contained within and the, the contrast between the New York school and, and the California and, and Asian schools and France, the Tashisma, all of it. I loved all of it. I just really love when you come on and talk about works that inspire you because they learned so much. I do appreciate you taking, um, you know, all this, doing all this reading and preparing and I really enjoy your your insights on work. I love talking to you. You're a great conversationalist. <laughs> oh, shucks. But um, yeah, so tell us where we can find you. I know that people can go to your website, elizabethcondon.com and also on Instagram, Elizabeth Condon. Don't forget that's Elizabeth with an S. Um, and then if you want to just let us know if there's anything coming up, we'd love to know where we can see your work in person. Okay, if you are in upstate New York near New Berlin, the Golden Factory, I'm in their show Made of Paint, which is the 22 residents of the Golden Foundation residency. 
And that show is surprisingly well installed in the gallery there, the Sam and Adele Golden Gallery, which is, <laughs> you know, and, and the gallery is beautiful. And the show is, it was just so beautifully installed. It really was shocking to see. And that's up at least through July. So if you're upstate and in New Berlin, don't hesitate. And then in New York, I'm in a group show at Catherine Markell Fine Arts at 520 West 20th Street. She's on the Suite 6W, so elevator to six or a good hike up the stairs. <laughs> I want to talk about the show in tandem with the front room show. I'm in the side room show curated by Marilla Palmer, who has the solo in front. And Marilla makes these flower paintings with watercolor, a difficult medium. As Tip of the cap. Yes. And she <laughs> at, she imbues the flowers with sequins and materials, little fabrics and different things to transform them from whatever they are to kind of hybrid anthropogenic progenic entities. And so you will see her work in the front room with those flower paintings and then a sculpture of a woman with a bird mask, and I'm not going any further than that. And then she curated this completely wicked sideshow. So that is, I think that's called Flowers of the Anthropocene. And then you move to the side room, which is Rainbow Rococo. And she put together seven artists who from different walks of her New York life as an artist. So it's like club habitués and all painters. Um, no, Dan Daniel, Daniel Wiener is a sculptor. Oh, yes. Um, and also Lisa Hoke has a sculpture mm -hmm. and Barbara Friedman has a sculpture. Oh, but that, yeah, show is, that show is almost like an extension of Marilla's show in all these different ways, like the unconscious of those flowers leaking out into this work. So that show is on through June 17th. And then in Florida, I have a show that's closing tomorrow at the Maitland Art and History Museum. And I thought there was another one, but I can't well, remember. Well, you just finished that large oh, commission. I just, I just <laughs> finished a big commission and I haven't seen it yet. And I don't have install photos. And that's why it feels abstract to me. But, but um, this is the piece that is just shy of a San Francisco size mural size painting for a university, yes. right? Uh, yes, it is a permanent installation at the Judy Genshaft Honors College at University of South Florida in Tampa. So that has been installed and they're finishing up the building. And so I'm, I'll go see it soon and it will be there forever. It you looks amazing. Thanks. Online. I, I was like, uh, just explosions of pinks and oranges and um, a lot of a lot of maw white space. I saw here and there. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. It, is, it is surprisingly light. And, and something that when I was really deep into Chinese painting, I started working on linen to mimic the elegance of paper in a way that canvas would not yield because canvas yeah. has such a strong identity. But the linen has a, you can really leave it bare and mm -hmm. it is just exquisite because I use yeah. a portrait linen. So imagine 32 feet of portrait linen. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> but it was, yeah. it was exciting, you know, to, <laughs> and it's such a great surface. It records everything. It records every single thing that happens on it. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of unforgiving, but the painting has a very light feeling. I do feel like linen will like collaborate with you. Um, whereas canvas is like this mute bystander that you do things to, <laughs> but the linen will collaborate and it's like working with you. If, if, if it wasn't just such an annoying 
beast with the wrinkling and the warping and so expensive. But yeah, it can be so beautiful to work on. It's beautiful and it's, it's, it's sensitive, but it stays on the top. And that is something that I, you know, I'm, it really stays on the top. Mm -hmm. So that is, so to build a space beneath it, you really literally like carving back into your painting or something, (laughs) or I am, I mean, that's, and I mean, I will do it, but I do it, but it's, it's weird. It's kind of like, you know, maybe, maybe you should think about something else, but that's (laughs) But that, but it's, but I like that resemblance to wallpaper, paper, mm-hmm. like, like, no, I'm not going to let you. So anyway, that's. Oh, congrats on finishing that. That was a monumental piece to finish. Thank you. Can I ask you um, what you have coming up? I'm, I'm yeah, you, yeah, you. Well, I'm co-organizing a show with my friend, Aidy Russell, and we're going to have a five person show during Upstate Art Weekend. It's right near the Stoneleaf Retreat, and it's a show based on the theme of John Berger's Appearances essay. Um, We'll have Judy Glantzman, Jesse Bransford, Natalie Bell, and Mandy Wilson-Rosen also in the show. And I'm making this huge outdoor ceramics installation, and I'm somewhat of a beginner, so there have been many heartbreaks. Um, in fact, I have a piece in the house now that's being um, reattached with epoxy putty, but I'm still, <laughs> I'm going to make these like totems or cairns for outside in this like red square. So wish me luck and also some indoor sculptures. And then I have a, a single collage going into a show at the Albany airport this summer in celebration of the Cut Me Up magazine. They produce a magazine, but they also are going to do an in-person show. You have to kind of recycle a bit of what's in the magazine for your own collage and and make something new. So it sort of honors what went before. And I think I'll just stop there before I overcommit. (laughs) Well, congratulations. I mean, really, and I do wish you luck on the ceramics. Thank you. I'm glad there's a tool to refasten what has been torn yeah. asunder. And actually, what about Kitsugi? Isn't that the Japanese? Yeah, well, I'm I'm accidentally technique? being a practitioner of that, uh, except it won't be gold. It'll be gray epoxy. <laughs> well, I mean, great. Let's bring it into the 21st century. Yeah. Well, I made this, uh, luckily I made this discovery that the clay I'm using, once it's fired, matches exactly this air dry clay that I can buy on Amazon and shove it in any crack and you can't. (laughs) Oh, that's great. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm unleashed. I'm unhinged. I'm uh, making Frankenstein things, but they'll be in the, they'll be in the outdoor and then they'll be in the indoor show. What day is the outdoor? That show will be July 22nd to 23rd. It's just a weekend event and it's just right next to the hub. So it's a convenient to everyone to come. So we've been working so hard on it. We're going to have a really fun weekend, but it's, you know, a lot more work to go still. Yeah, 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 I'm sure. But that's always, it's what we live for, really. Yeah, exactly. And, oh, and the listener should also be alert that Elizabeth and I and Jennifer Coates, also a dear friend of the pod, will be all collaborating to react to the Bernard show that just closed at Aquabella Galleries and that will be coming up soon. So, uh, you know, keep an eye out, keep an ear out for that to come. Can't wait. Can't wait to release that. (laughs) I think, I think you said, um, 
when I asked you which which painting you chose, you you uh, I won't give it away, but I think your phrase was her hair showed like a helmet. Oh, it, it, <laughs> you know, that Bonard show, I'm just going to say in general how ex I am really excited to talk about. Yeah, it. I mean, yeah, it, it, me it was it was stellar. And 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 his ticks that come over time. I don't think any of us chose a painting that reveals the tick of the chair against the table, which turns out to be this cruciform that locks every composition in, like the back of a toilet seat or something. But it <laughs> it just really, you know, with Sam Francis, I'm yeah, just going to say there's this. So I, many overlaps. We've been talking for hours now. I know, but, but I, there's so many overlaps because, like, Bonard paints the void. Often, there's nothing. There's no real subject. It's just a space right, is right. What, what your focal point is. And it's similar to the Sam Francis Edge paintings. And, and you know, the thing about Sam Francis, I mean, you can't describe his work. You can't fasten on images. You yeah. know, it's really interesting with that. You can't, you actually can only talk about it through the movements of the body or maybe color selection or something like that. But it's just, it doesn't, I sometimes, I sometimes wonder if he is the restless traveler and spirit that he was to live in the moment really those paintings were just for him mm -hmm. in the sense mm -hmm. that he got to make them yeah you know I mean Bo both yeah yeah okay. yeah I mean certainly I would because I don't think I think he was always aware of others and but I I'm sure he just loved moving on those paintings yeah and really communing with them and he would have to 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 make them at that yeah. scale and also just being radical, like not following the herd. I love that. But like not following the herd and being radical, but being a wolf in sheep's clothing. Because the sheep is this like bright, sparkling color. And then the wolf's underneath. Because right. the wolf's like, ha there's uh, no, no subject here. Deal right. with it. The glass is coming down. Deal with right. it. Like the meat. Right. Okay. <laughs> oh, no, wait. it's good. That's actually really, it. that's actually really good. It kind of distilled it. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth, so much for coming on. It was a delight as always. Can't wait to do the next one, especially the Bonard. And when the lightning bolt strikes, send up the bat signal, we'll record a new one. Excellent. Will do. Thank okay. you so much. Well, um, talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. A robust yet lyrical thank you to Elizabeth Condon, for sharing her brilliance with me for a third time and telling me all about the fascinating Sam Francis and his work and philosophies. The painting she chose, untitled from the Edge series, 1968 through 69, is included in Sam Francis and Japan, Emptiness Overflowing at LACMA. And the show is up through July 16, 2023. You can find out more information about Elizabeth's work and current and upcoming shows on her website, elizabethcondon.com, and on her Instagram, at elizabethcondon. And don't forget, that's Elizabeth with an S. I'll put all links in the show notes. Pep Talks is online, too, at Pep Talks for Artists on Instagram, and is also a written-to-be-read column called Whisperings from the Wormhole on Artspiel. You can find it at artspiel.org. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it on social media, leaving a review on your podcast player, or donating at buymeacoffee.com. You can find the link in this episode's description. 
I really appreciate you stopping by and I'll see you next time. Must be oh. nice.